Thank you, Nikki McKenzie. Uh, please join me uh, for some prayer before we dive into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you more than anything else in the world. We need your spirit to come and be with us. Even though we are not together physically, Father God, your spirit unites us, joins us together in worship. And what we need most of all right now is to hear from you, hear your voice and hear what you have to tell us today. Father, we're turning back into the book of John. We're beginning a new series. We're starting to, to redial our hearts and our minds into the, 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 the biography that John recorded by the Holy Spirit. And we need you to show us new things. We need to see new things about the Father. We need to see new things about Christ. And we need to see new things about the Holy Spirit. And today, uh, if you are pleased to do that, I pray that you'd pour out your Spirit on each and every individual uh, who's joining us to worship, and that your name would be magnified and glorified in us seeing new realities about who you are and what you've done in our lives, Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So last time we were in the book of John, which was several weeks ago, we read through the closing verses of chapter 2. And I don't know if you remember what we read, uh, but they explained a, a common theme, a common response that we see to Jesus's earthly ministry. And uh, we see a snapshot, really, of how mankind saw Christ as he taught, as he healed people, as he did all of these different signs and cared for the people who were around him. We see how they responded to him. And the response is very clear. Verse 23 of John 2 tells us, Now when uh, he, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So John tells us here that that people believed in the name of Jesus, which is an exciting proposition. But it also says here that Jesus did not entrust himself. It literally means he didn't believe them because he knew what was in man. John is saying here that Jesus wasn't fooled by a, a, a mere profession of faith or really any kind of faith that didn't receive him for who he really was. <clears throat> Jesus wasn't fooled by that. He wasn't fooled by the kind of, of believing in his name that only sought to have him as a means and not as the end. Jesus looks at that faith and says, no, that's not who I am, and that's not what I've come to do. <clears throat> the faith we see here believes in Jesus only to get something that these people want more than him. And that's not what Jesus is after, and therefore Jesus does not entrust himself <clears throat> to them. This is not real sincere, genuine faith, because true faith receives Jesus Christ as the treasure that he really is. Um, it doesn't simply receive him as a, a tool or an instrument to get something that we really want. True, sincere faith in the heart of a, a human being receives Jesus both as the means and the end. He is the object of our desire. And this is what we are presented with in the beginning of chapter 3, as we go into this new series that we have called He Brought Us Life, talking about Jesus bringing us life. 
That's what this whole series is going to be about, and this chapter engages it head on. We are introduced to a man named Nicodemus, and Jesus is going to explain to Nicodemus how it is that true faith that brings with it eternal life comes into existence in the soul of a human being. How does that actually come about? If what we saw at the end of chapter 2 isn't true faith, how does true faith materialize in the heart of a person? And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do grab them, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in John 3, the beginning of John 3. We're going to start with verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read just initially through uh, verse 3 here. John 3 verse 1 begins, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here we are introduced to this man, Nicodemus, who, as you can see, is is really a a stunning example of what we just got done talking about at the end of chapter 2. He's seen Jesus' signs, and he's done the math, and he's logically arrived at the conclusion. He says right here, Jesus, you are a teacher. You've come from God. And his reasoning, reasoning is very simple. No one could do what you've done unless God was with them. There's, there's just simply no other explanation for this. And Nicodemus is described here as a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, which means he belongs really to the highest echelon of religious authority in Jerusalem. <laughs> He's described here in verse 10 as a teacher of Israel, as the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus is no pushover. Um, That's clear from the very beginning of this. If anyone could correctly see and assess Jesus's ministry, it would be this man. He knows the scriptures. He knows what to look for in someone who claims that they come from God. Furthermore, he's a Pharisee. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, and you will as we go through this book, uh, they are a faction of religious elite that, in fact, in this book, John will show us time and time again that they are at odds with Jesus, which is why Nicodemus comes at night here. Uh, He is sincerely curious about Jesus. This is not a false claim. He is sincere about this, but he obviously doesn't want to incur any, any ill favor from his fellow colleagues in the Pharisee camp. And so he comes at night, under the cover of night genuinely trying to find out who this Jesus person is. And that's what we see here. Now, Jesus' answer to Nicodemus isn't what we would expect. I think that's fair to say. Um, In fact, Jesus isn't even answering a question that Nicodemus asked, uh, which is one of the reasons why I love Jesus. (laughs) He hardly ever answers the questions we ask. He answers the questions we need to have answered most importantly. He doesn't play games. Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why do you you say this, Jesus? Why are you saying this here? Why don't you just ask Nicodemus to believe in you? I mean, that seems simple enough. We know that 
everyone who believes in the in the Lord Jesus Christ is saved. We know that that's, that's our gateway into the kingdom of God is through faith. It would seem like Nicodemus is almost there. I mean, <clears throat> if he could just encourage Nicodemus to take a few more logical and rational steps and make a decision to follow him, wouldn't he have a new disciple? I mean, that's the logical, that's the rational thought here. And what Jesus' response makes very clear is that he's not at all interested in continuing Nicodemus's train of logical, reasoned thought, or even simply requesting that Nicodemus believe in him right there on the spot. Jesus' response indicates that it is impossible for someone to see the kingdom of God, to, to, to see it, to enjoy it, unless something massive happens first inside of them. Sheer assessment and analysis of facts about who Jesus is cannot gain you access into the kingdom of God. Jesus says that in order for someone to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And before we get into what that means, and this is huge, we're talking about something that is fundamental to, to, to the reality and experience of every Christian. Before we talk about that, I just want to think out loud with you about the implications of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is sincere in his request. There's no mistake about that. Um, he's pulled the pieces together and he's arrived at a logical, reasoned understanding of who Jesus is based on the evidence. Isn't that sufficient? Isn't, isn't that enough? And Jesus is saying here, no, it's not enough. Something powerful must happen within a person first, according to Jesus. Something so fundamental, so extraordinary, that in the, to, to use language to describe it is to, be, is to call it being born again. <laughs> Something so fundamental as being born all over again. Um, and Jesus uh, says straight up, unless you're, this happens to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is not the first time, if you've been with us over the course of this last <clears throat> six months or so, that we've seen language of being born in the book of John. We've seen this before. We've seen this in John 1. For example, John 1, 11, you remember this passage because we've quoted it multiple times over the past six months. <clears throat> John 1.11 says, He, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. So John, when introducing Jesus' ministry at the very beginning of his gospel, has already said that those who truly believe and truly receive Jesus, not a mere profession, but actually do receive him for who he is, those are born of God. They have become his children through this born experience, this birth experience. And John describes this birth as being not from blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This didn't happen by any of those instruments. 
This happened by God himself. God did this. In other words, our faith ultimately, most decisively, is not a product of sheer willpower. Our faith isn't the result of, of human wisdom. Our faith isn't the result of natural processes of deduction and logic. Our faith arises from an experience that John calls here and Jesus calls in chapter 3 <clears throat> that's like being born all over again. Being born of God, according to chapter uh, 1. Now, Nicodemus' response to this statement of Jesus is, is what we would expect. <laughs> he has a very logical response to Jesus because what Jesus has just told him <clears throat> does not add up to how Nicodemus understands the world. So John 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus has a, a rational and logical question. I mean, this is the question that we would ask. How can a man bo be born when he's old? This doesn't make any sense. How is what you're describing, Jesus, even possible? And Jesus, again, bypasses <laughs> Nicodemus's statement and continues to say and press that this birth experience must happen before you can enter the kingdom of God. He calls it here uh, being born of water and the Spirit. And Jesus is saying this has to happen. And then he tells us why it has to happen. He explains to us why in the next sentence. He says, that which is born of the flesh is merely flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is the reason Jesus gives. This is the... This is, how Nicodemus should understand why this has to happen. Something radical has to occur um, in order for a person to be able to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Something at the same level of being born. And that's what Nic Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying that when a person's born in this world, they are born of the flesh. They are a flesh and blood creature. But for a child of God to be born into this world... They must be born of the Spirit. There is no other way into the kingdom of God. And although Nicodemus is struggling to come to grips with this concept, this isn't actually a new theological idea that Jesus is presenting. Jesus is simply referring to a promise that God had made 600 years earlier through one of his prophets. It's a promise that we, we, we see most clearly in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 like I said, written hundreds of years prior to John 3, we see God promise this. It's verse 25. I didn't write it down here. Sorry. <laughs> God says to his own people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my 
spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> this is what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. This is God's promise to his own people. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. I will put my own spirit inside of you and that will change everything. That will make you completely brand new and it will cause you to walk in my statutes. No longer will your heart be like a stone. It will now beat for me. Every beat will be for me. A heart that earnestly desires to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. This is what Jesus means when he says being born of water and the Spirit. This is what he's talking about. He's pointing to this Old Testament prophecy. And he's, he's, he's saying that this prophecy would be an event so radical that God would take the hardened hearts of his own people and he would give them new life. Not only would they be cleansed, not only would they be washed clean of their sins and idolatries by the very hands of God, but he would give them his own spirit. He would put inside of them his own spirit in order that they might keep his commands and his rules. This is what Jesus means when he says being born of the spirit. He's saying that this is the only way that, can so, that, can someone, that someone can enter the kingdom of God. It's an act so fundamental and so profound that it can only be described as a birth. And it's clear, as Jesus continues with Nicodemus, that he is still struggling with this reality. He is a Pharisee, like we said. And what that means is he was known for his law-keeping, his, his obedience and so to Nicodemus, the, the, the notion that entrance into God's kingdom could not be achieved by, by sheer willpower or human resolve, that was outrageous to him. It did not fit into his worldview. It was inconceivable. And his entire way of life was based in the opposite direction, trying to achieve those things on his own merit, on his own ability. And yet Jesus is saying here that it's not first a human decision. It's not first a human action. It is an act of God in a person that must first take place in the heart of a sinner in order for any action after that to be possible. And we see Jesus reaffirming this as he continues his conversation in verse 7, John 3. Look at verse 7. Do not marvel, Jesus says that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying, don't marvel about that. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus isn't making this any easier for poor Nicodemus. It's not more palatable. What he just said is pressing it even further. The word in Greek for spirit and wind are the same word. You may know them already because you've heard them. They're pneuma. Pneuma means breath, uh, literally. And so this is a play on words, wind, spirit. Jesus is, is asking him, he's basically saying, why are you marveling at this, Nicodemus? <laughs> why are you so amazed that this is how God works? This is no different than the wind that you experience every day in your life when you're outside. 
The wind blows wherever the wind wants to blow. Wherever it wishes, it blows. We may hear its sound. We may know where, but we don't know where it comes from. We can hear it moving and see its effects, but we don't know where it comes from and we don't know where it's going. We can't control either of those things. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly like being born of the Spirit. That's what that experience is really like. He's telling Nicodemus, you, you can't control the wind. You can't control the wind. So why in the world would you think that you can control the Spirit of the living God? The Spirit blows wherever He desires, wherever He wishes. And when He blows on a human heart, no matter where they are, no matter how far they may seem to be from God, they are born of the Spirit. God cleanses them by pouring out this clean water and uh, his own spirit into their soul, and he makes them his child. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying it to a Pharisee, too, who has a whole paradigm in mind that cannot stomach the idea that he simply can't white-knuckle his way into the kingdom of God through some sort of obedience or external morality. And Jesus is saying, no. The human heart is far too broken and too enslaved to sin for salvation to be possible as a product of just willpower. In order for someone to be saved, in order for someone to access the kingdom of God, it requires an act of the living God. Now, I'm giving Nicodemus a hard time here, obviously. Um, <laughs> because here's the deal. Our natural response to what Jesus is saying is no different than Nicodemus's. Our, our natural response to the idea of the Spirit blowing wherever he pleases isn't any different. We would respond and say, how can these things be? Which is exactly what Nicodemus is going to say in verse 9. God willing, we'll see that next Sunday. We're not comfortable, naturally, <laughs> with any kind of salvation that we cannot meaningfully or decisively contribute to in some way. We would all say that we want salvation to be by grace alone. No one would disagree with that statement because we know we can't live up to God's righteous standard. But our natural tendency as human beings, just like Nicodemus, is to make our own will, our own actions, ultimate and decisive at some level. And what Jesus is saying here is that any faith that, that actually receives Jesus, receive, receives Christ for who he is, isn't self-originating. It isn't something we can just manufacture intellectually. True faith comes from being born again. It must arise from the heart of someone who's been born of the Spirit, someone who has experienced this radical transformation that the prophet Ezekiel prophesied 600 years earlier, this transformation that is brought about by the hand of God. Jesus is saying, our sin has done more damage to our souls than we can possibly imagine. We have underestimated its extent of damage. The human heart isn't just something that needs a little nudge in the right direction. God has to effectively start over. That's why it's called the new birth. The brokenness of the human condition isn't in need of just a slight tweak to get it in alignment with God. 
it needs to be uprooted entirely and begun all over again. It requires to be born of the Spirit. Listen to how Paul describes this event in Titus 3. In Titus 3, Paul describes this event with such vivid accuracy and consistency with what we just saw in John 3. We needed to visit this this week. <laughs> Titus 3 verses, start with verse 3. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is an amazing passage, one of my favorite in the pastoral epistles. Paul begins by stating all the things that you and I were before God's work in our hearts. We were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to different passions, we were filled with malice and envy. <clears throat> He's simply describing human nature. Um, this is not remarkable. None of these features are remarkable. He's describing the natural state of brokenness and sin that all mankind lives in apart from God's grace. We are, we are just driven to selfish, selfish inclinations. Um, we are driven to what we want, no matter the cost, and not what God desires from us. But then verse 4 breaks into this passage. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. When that happened, when, when that reality happened, God saved us, Paul says. The Spirit brought us real life through the cross. He saved us. And you notice from this text, we didn't deserve anything. <laughs> we didn't merit salvation here. We were simply recipients of the goodness and loving kindness of God. This right here that Paul's describing of is being born of the Spirit. It's God's gracious interruption of the sinful trajectory of our lives, which Paul makes sure to clarify. This is not a result of works. We, we, didn't, we didn't contribute anything to this event except for the sin that made it necessary. We didn't do anything in righteousness. We didn't have inclinations in us towards God. We contributed nothing valuable to this event. It was according to God's mercy, God's own mercy, Paul says. The Spirit blows wherever He wishes. You hear its sound. You hear His sound, but you don't know where He came from. You don't know where He's going. That's what this is like. And when this happens to us, God mercifully pouring out His Spirit, the washing of regeneration, Paul calls it here, the renewal of the Spirit. This is being born of, the wa of, of water and the Spirit. When that happens to a person, it is like being born all over again. You have new affections, new desires, new, new hopes. You become an heir of the hope of eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 3. All of these new realities start to break into our lives. We still have to deal with sin. We still have to work on killing, putting to death the old man. But 
True faith at its heart isn't the result of human effort. It's not the result of our willpower. True faith that unites us to Christ, that, that gets us into the kingdom of God, that kind of faith arises from a powerful, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of a human being. That's how it happens. Now, one of the main questions I have for a text like this when we go through it is, is why, why did Jesus explain this here? Why does Jesus labor with Nicodemus for him to know this reality? Why doesn't he just say, believe and trust in, in me and you will be saved? I mean, that's true. That is a true statement. He says that. Other people say that throughout the scriptures. Why doesn't that happen here? Well, the reason is, that Jesus wants you and I, and he wants Nicodemus 2,000 years ago, to know how it is God saved us. He wants us to know that. He wants us <laughs> to know how we became children of God. It wasn't the result of a decision we made, ultimately. It wasn't the result of our logic, ultimately, or willpower. Even though they may have had a place, a role to play in it, it wasn't ultimately and decisively because of that. It was ultimately a radical intrusion of the grace of God into the rebellious heart of a sinner. And when we recognize that's what happened here to each of us who believe in Jesus Christ, it should create great humility in us. We should be astounded by the mercy of God. Because we recognize that it isn't us that did this. In fact, it should create compassion in us. I mean, deep rivers of compassion for people who are not born again, who don't know this experience. If we're not the decisive factor in our own salvation, our own entrance into the kingdom of God, but God was the decisive one ultimately, then he didn't save us because of anything in us. It wasn't because of our spiritual inclinations or our, our adeptness with spiritual realities or our sensitivity to the things of God it had nothing to do with that. God, in fact, saved us in spite of us. And therefore, we are no better than anyone else in this world. Everything truly good in us, truly good, truly genuine and sincere, came from this amazing experience of new birth being born of the Spirit. This merciful, unilateral act of God that changed our lives forever. And that's the whole point Jesus is making to Nicodemus here. <clears throat> He's saying, Nicodemus, if you, if, you, if you enter the kingdom of God, you need to recognize that it's because you are a sinner saved by grace. I brought you through the cross life. He brought us life. Not because of anything decisive we contributed to the equation but because of the goodness and loving kindness of God worked out through Christ and his work on the cross and in in the spirit as he invades our sinful hearts and that should not only give us humility but a profound sense of hope I mean it should give us hope in our for the people who are in our lives who have not experienced being born of the spirit if it was simply up to human willpower or ability, 
I'm going to be real with you. We would have no hope for anyone in our lives. Um, even Nicodemus, who knew his Bible front to back, needed this reality. He needed this experience. Jesus was saying to him, and he's saying to us in this text, listen, with man, entrance into the kingdom of God is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so here's, here's where this is extremely hopeful. There is no one in the world that is too enslaved, too broken, too sinful for God to not be able to break into their lives through the Holy Spirit and breathe new life into their soul and turn everything around. There is no one on this planet, and you need to hear this, because for some people it may be hard to believe. Um, for me, it's hard to believe about my own life. There is nobody on this planet who is beyond God's reach. The whole point of this scene in John 3 right here, where Jesus says, unless one is born of the, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The whole purpose of that statement is to say, God is able. God is able. He can save anyone. No one is too far outside of his reach. And so in the next few moments as we sing um, this song and, and participate in communion, you are invited to, in, in, in your own homes, your own place, uh, take the elements and participate with those you love who trust in Christ Jesus. As you do that, I would invite you first and foremost to simply marvel at God's grace. Marvel at his love for us in bringing about the new birth in our hearts. It is an amazing, undeserved, unmerited grace, and we should glory in it every day of our lives. It did not need to be this way. But the second thing is I would suggest that all of us spend the, the today and the foreseeable future here just pleading with God that by his grace he might show the same undeserved mercy to the people in our lives and in our community, Kingsgate, greater Seattle area, people in your families who, who do not have this experience in their life. They've never ever been born again. They don't, they don't know what it tastes like to experience the love of God in this way. Pray that the Spirit would even now, like as you communicate the gospel to them, which needs to happen, but but even, even when they are surrounded by nobody and they, they don't have anybody around them, pray that the Spirit would overwhelm, overtake, overcome every resistance in their hearts and bring them into the family of God. Every person we would desire to see saved and redeemed and brought into his kingdom, that this reality would be theirs. Pray with me to that end. That's one of the reasons this is recorded in the scriptures. Christ wants us to see how we were saved so that we, with, with great joy and great hope, pursue the people in our own lives who need to see Jesus. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering the body together this morning. Um, I pray that your grace um, just remains constant in our hearts and our minds in the coming weeks and, and even months, Father God, <clears throat> as this 
situation runs its course. It's been difficult, I know, for many. I pray that your grace would be with us and that you would awaken in us today uh, a, a new appreciation for your mercy and your love for us, your compassion for us, and a hunger in our own lives to hold out the gospel to the people around us so that the reality of the new birth, this being born of the spirit that Jesus talks about, can be their experience, Father God. We need you. We desire and long for you to do this. Please break into our lives and into the lives of those around us, Father, anew with the Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.